um, we really see that's it's DeFi and it's going to change how finance is going to work. And then they jump on the latest bandwagon, one of which is things like non-fungible tokens, Correct. where you, know, you hear these uh, extraordinary stories of pieces of digital art being Correct. sold for like tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, uh, uh, 69 million US 69 dollars. 69 million dollars by US. an artist that no one other than someone who's involved in it has ever heard of. Sure, uh, by, by people. But um, I mean, beyond that, um, I mean, it is obviously hype. And um, actually, most insiders in the art world would say the NFT bubble is already you know coming gone it's already burst um which means that the the transaction volumes are, are lower now but um having said that uh we do believe the nft is uh, all will also change how art is perceived for example um your uh digital uh i guess ip anything uh, intellectual property um actually loses value once it's become digital for example when you imagine a music or a, a video you know once it's put online then anyone can view it for free then mm. it seems it's no longer valuable, right? Mm. But NFT puts the value back into anything digital. So oh, I think okay. that's going to be very interesting. Very interesting indeed. We'll have to talk more about this in the future. Thank you sure. very much for coming in, Jesse. Thank you, Peter. That's Jesse Coe, who is General Manager at Blockchain Solutions. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. In Australia, things have turned around a bit now. The SX200 down about 0.1%. Uh, Japan storming ahead, though. The Nikkei 225 up 1.25%. Uh, the Cosby is pretty well flat at the moment. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to rise about a third of a percent at the open. Thanks very much for listening this, this morning. Do play stay tuned for Back Chat. Hugh Chiverton and Jim Gould up next. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, sunny intervals during the day. Maximum temperature of around 28 degrees. And then the outlook, mainly fine and hot, apart from isolated showers in the next couple of days. It's 24 degrees right now, 81% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. Health authorities say they found no new infections after testing some 460 residents of Block R of Orway Gardens in Chunwan. They've all been quarantined for 21 days after a recently arrived foreign domestic helper was found with a highly infectious strain of COVID. A Chunwan district councillor, Chu Yan Loy, complained about the evacuation of the building, saying people were kept waiting at home for hours with no information. He said one man was taken to hospital after becoming emotional. Yeah, complained for a long time about why they, they have uh, waking in the home and nobody can tell him what time they were sent to the camp. He have a, a slide warning in the forum and anger to the, to the government officer, also the police officer. Facebook's Oversight Board has upheld the company's decision to suspend Donald Trump's account following his posts he made during the attack on the U.S. Congress by his supporters in January. The independent panel said Facebook was right to bar the former president, but rejected the open-ended nature of the ban. Facebook has six months to make a proportionate response. The board's head of communications is Dex hunter Torek. You know, Facebook has a user community of billions of users. It is really important for the sake of fairness that the rules are clear and transparent and they apply to everyone equally. Facebook cannot make up the rules as it goes, even if they think it's really well-intentioned. The American retail entrepreneur and Amazon founder Jeff Bezos says he's now ready to put people in space on a rocket launch from Texas. The first flight is scheduled for the 20th of July. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Amos. Jeff Bezos was inspired by Apollo and while building his online retail empire has spent a big chunk of his fortune investing in his space hobby. 
His Blue Origin company has built a reusable rocket and capsule system called New Shepard, named after the first American astronaut and Apollo moonwalker, Alan Shepard. Mr Bezos is going to sell tickets for what will be 10-minute rides in this system. Passengers reaching the top of the climb will experience some brief moments of weightlessness and get a view of Earth's curved horizon. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today is Jim Gould. Jim, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, should we stop eating fish? And after 9.15, we're going to be talking about pet issues and the pandemic. Seaspiracy, a Netflix documentary about the massive impact of industrialised commercial fishing on our oceans, is making waves. It claims that fishing has wiped out 90% of the world's large fish and that fishing is the greatest threat to marine wildlife. It rejects this concept of sustainable fishing and criticises several marine conservation organisations. It recommends shifting to a plant-based diet, enforcing no-catch marine reserves, protecting some 30% of our oceans and ending fishing subsidies from governments. Many have accused the film of making misleading and overstated claims, but how bad is the situation now in reality? What is the future of fishing worldwide? Is the such a thing as sustainability is fish farming hazardous for the environment and what's the situation like here in hong kong let us know your thoughts you can leave comments on our facebook page bank chat on rthk radio 3 you can email us bank chat at rthk.hk or you can call us and our number is 233-88266 that's 233-88266 and after 9 15 we're going to be talking about pets and covid what happens to pets if we go into quarantine uh, is it possible to relocate or travel overseas with animals uh, at the moment uh, a vet will be joining us uh, later in the programme. Uh, well, we're going to be talking, as I say, about fish in just a moment. Let's just, uh, uh, there's a few uh, emails we've got related to uh, yesterday's uh, discussion um, that I'd just like to air before we get into the fish. Uh, Dr. Judith Mackay uh, says, on the question of WHO and Taiwan, this is an email, uh, Mark Pinkston, who was a guest yesterday, is correct. The reality is that the WHO itself has no jurisdiction over the status of Taiwan. It's the decision of the member states, uh, or uh, for example, all the countries who formulate WHO policy and who would take the decision on Taiwan. Like all UN agencies, WHO is but the secretariat and staff to implement the wishes of its member states. Bob says, your host, your co-host, Stephen Vines, seems to believe that the role of journalists is so important to the survival of societies that the rules and laws that apply to others do not apply to them. It's twisted logic that the action of the RTHK reporter accessing the vehicle licence database via a false declaration is quite justifiable under freedom of the press, seems to say that the press should be above the law, a supposition that was utterly disproved in the trials and convictions of various journalists accused and subsequently convicted of hacking mobile phones in the UK not many years ago. A journalist who believes one day it's okay to make a false declaration in pursuit of a story may very well consider the next day that phone hacking is also a fair go. In spite of their claims to somehow be the standard bearers of a just society, journalists have repeatedly shown themselves to be just as human as everybody else, and for Mr Vines to argue that the end justifies the means is a self-serving construct. That is uh, from Bob. And uh, one more from uh, Matthew. 
who says, uh, in a place like Hong Kong, which is rapidly being absorbed into an authoritarian dictatorship and increasingly ruled by uncertainty and fear, it's very easy to forget that the government and all its services are still entirely funded by the people, via taxes on our salaries and assets. This includes RTHK and this programme. It's also easy to dismiss and just pass over what happened on this programme yesterday, because we all do understand the impossible situation that RTHK are in, including the producers and hosts of the programme. Uh, but step back and think about it for a second. A publicly funded broadcaster ran a programme to discuss controversies directly related to itself, yet no one from RTHK appeared on its own programme to discuss or respond to these concerns. This is mind-boggling in any normal, non-dystopian context. Uh, Hugh, you've been very transparent in the past about the problem of backchat, asking various pro-government people on the programme and then refusing to participate. Did you invite any RTHK management to join yesterday's programme? And if so, can you please be transparent with us, the people who fund this station, regarding who was invited and what reasons were given for them not joining? Also, were Bao Choi and Nabella Cossa invited to join the, join the programme? Uh, if not, uh, why not? OK, Matthew, uh, we did invite uh, RTHK uh, management to join the programme. They uh, just referred us to the statement uh, that they previously made about the, uh, about the YouTube uh, uh, policy. In general, um, RTHK is... Uh, it, there's an obvious conflict of interest. When, when, when in RTHK, we're talking about RTHK issues, uh, we can easily be criticised for being too soft or being too hard or for having other motives or, or anything like this. So we're in a kind of bind when we talk about RTHK. So uh, we, we, we recognise that people are interested in RTHK and it is an issue for, dis for discussion. We're not best placed to talk about it, as I say, because that of inherent conflict of interest. So uh, we, we touched on it, uh, but we're, there were also broader issues of press freedom that we wanted to talk about. Uh, as I understand it, Nabella is still employed by RTHK. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure, quite sure about that. Uh, and uh, uh, Bao Choi, I think there are legal proceedings uh, ongoing. We, we didn't invite them uh, to join the programme uh, anyway. Um, so, uh, Matthew, we're doing our best. That's uh, <laughs> what I can say uh, as things stand uh, at the moment. Yeah. Okay, so uh, on, to, on to this morning's um, main topic, and that is the fishing. And uh, this email from Mr. Tang to start off the discussion writes, uh, my friend recommended Seaspiracy to me, so I watched the documentary last month and was astounded at the possible impact of fishing on the ecosystem. I'm not a scientist, so I cannot verify the claims made in the film, but I am considering stopping the consumption of fish or seafood in general altogether. Climate change, global warming, depletion of earth resources and pollution are all big environmental issues that deserve global attention. Leading a minimalist life seems the best course of action to take to counteract the damage done to our planet, as human activity does play a huge part in the gradual destruction of habitats of other species. We humans are not necessarily more deserving to consume earth resources at the expense of other living organisms. Well, uh, we're joined joined uh, on the line uh, this morning uh, by Benjamin So, who's uh, founder of a seafood import firm, 178 Degrees, uh, and founding member of uh, Hong Kong Seafood Sustainable Coalition. Also by Gary Stokes, who's the co-founder and uh, director of operations of uh, Oceans Asia and uh, formerly the Asia director for Sea Shepherd Global. Um, uh, Benjamin, so uh, perhaps if we could start with you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks Good for having me. Good morning. Um, um, uh, uh, did you um, see this uh, do documentary, Sea Spiracy? Have you watched it? I did. I did. Actually, it was one of our um, customers who um, suggested that I do so. Um, 
I still, I didn't watch it to the end, but I, you know, I think I made it to that halfway through. Um, um, what do you think of it? I think it raises lots of um, relevant issues, and it's exactly what we're trying to address through the HKSFC. So I think the problem is real. It's not um, to be dismissed. But I think there are solutions. Perhaps I, I thought the conclusion was a bit too bleak and uh, underestimates the, um, I think the, the power of technology and also human ingenuity to, to tackle this problem. Because one of the main messages of the film is, in fact, there's no such thing as sustainable fishing because you can't check. You've got uh, trawlers out in the open ocean. It's impossible to have uh, monitors uh, on all of them. Um, how, how do you right. respond to that? I, 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 I would um, refute that um, quite strongly. I think it's a very strong um, thing to say that it does not exist. In a lot of places, it's not applied, but it, it certainly does. So I'll give the example of um, museum fisheries because um, that, that's where I am at the moment and that's where I grew up. And in fact, our company sources foodstuffs, including seafood, um, exclusively from museums. Um, not to say that other fisheries don't have the same controls, but uh, I think I'm, I'm best placed to talk about uh, the local regulations. So back in the, the 80s, uh, 1983, 81, yeah, mid-80s, um, there was a major change in the um, regulation of fisheries in New Zealand. So uh, I think we were one of the first countries in the world to have a national quota management system put in place. So what that involves is um, there, there are quotas that are set based on scientific data. So there are um, surveys done to assess what the, the biomass is in the oceans, um, in New Zealand's EZ, and based on that, they will determine what the uh, allowable commercial catch will be for the following year. So there, there's a feedback loop. Um, uh, if there is um, a decrease in the population of the biomass, then the, the quota is adjusted. And, and that basically is um, an illustration of meant by sustainable. I think it, they did get, you know, I think it is true that people don't truly really understand the term because there is no um, easily understandable definition. I, I think the way to look at it is that something is sustainable if you can continue um, performing that action indefinitely. So um, I'm, I'm a marathon runner, so I think, you know, a good analogy is you can't run out um, you know, for 42 kilometres as a sprint. That's not sustainable. But there is there is a level of, of, of speed that you can maintain for that distance. I think that, that applies also to fishing. There There is a level of fishing that will allow the natural resource to replenish itself. And that's the, that's the amazing nature of, of the oceans. It, it does have the capacity um, to regenerate. We just have to let it... Um, allowed to do so. Um, so this is the system that's put in place in New Zealand, <laughs> and uh, it, it has served the country well for the last three decades, three and a half decades. And part of the secret to that is it aligns the interests of the fishermen with that of um, the resource itself. So there's no mad race to catch all the fish there is out there because the 
closer. So it's, it's in their interest to protect the, uh, the natural stock of fish so that um, it makes no sense to just pillage it one year because you won't get anything the next. So this has um, been well recognized in, uh, internationally for its efficacy. Uh, I believe Iceland might have uh, adopted this similar sort of system. Does it mean though? Does does it mean uh, fewer fish in the end caught? Does it mean more expensive fish? Does it mean that we will be paying more and eating less fish uh, worldwide because uh, people are just you know killing more and more fish? Has that got that cycle got to end? Well, I think to, to some extent it might be more expensive in the short term because what's happening is that um, fishermen are allowed to take shortcuts. And those costs are hidden. So, you know, in, in economic terms, it's, um, it's a hidden externality. What we need to do is to place those costs back into the commercial system so that they're not allowed to, for instance, um, uh, devastate the seabeds when they're, they're, they're fishing. Um, I, I think you know, perhaps what I would suggest is one of the weaknesses of the movie is that there's no real um, analysis of, of what constitutes good fishing practices. And um, so it's, 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 it's a bit um, generalized to say that there is no such thing as, as good fishing and therefore you must not eat any fish. Okay. Um, and, okay um, give me another... Yeah. Uh, well, well, let's Sorry. let's let's get a um, response from Gary Stokes. I mean, how about that? It, sure, is, sure. it, it is it is possible to have sustainable fishing. Hello, hello, Gary. Um, can you hear me? That here? yes, we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, one of the things that we had in the movie was uh, obviously there was quite a heavy focus on Asian fishing fleets, um, and we've been also criticised for you know, looking at and blaming and pointing the finger at Asian fleets. Now, it's great that, um, you know, we're talking about New Zealand fisheries, for example. Um, and uh, I, I'm currently actually doing an investigation on one of the major fishing fleets, uh, one of the fishing companies in New Zealand. Uh, they operate some massive super trawlers, and um, they are decimating the seafloor with every single time they cast a net, pulling up, uh, corals all across the seabed. Um, I also have footage of them pulling up uh, endangered basking sharks onto the deck. Uh, I've been checking with the New Zealand government and they have not reported the catching of an endangered basking shark, uh, which is completely illegal. Now, this is one of the top companies in New Zealand. These are supposed to be operating under the best, strictest guidelines. And yet they're not following it at all. They had an observer on board and completely ignored everything. So when we look at this, I mean, this is not even looking at the Chinese or Taiwanese or the Japanese fleets that are just going out, you know, carte blanche, just mining the ocean, or even the European fleets like the Spanish fleet. Um, so when we're looking at the scale of commercial industrial fishing, there is a global massive problem. And that's where Seaspiracy was targeting the whole, we need to give up fish. Um, we're not saying when we were 
giving that message in the movie that the whole world has to stop. Artisanal coastal fishermen, say in the Philippines or in West Africa, they're sustenance fishermen. They've been doing that for thousands of years. They are not the problem. The problem are these uh, heavily subsidized foreign vessels that are coming in and literally strip mining the ocean. So when we're talking about sustainable fishing, it is a complete myth at the moment. Um, I'll give one example. In Australia, in South Australia, um, southern bluefin tuna, which is the most critically endangered on the IUCN red list, it went down to 3% of its biomass. And yet it's certified sustainable by an organization called Friends of the Sea, which are actually larger than MSC. It's now the stock has gone back to 9% of its biomass, and it's basically been, okay, everything's going great. Can we increase the quota to 16,000 tons a year? Because that's the allowable catch um, that makes it sustainable, apparently. But the, the, it's very clear. It's $153 million Australian dollars of trade to Japan in just, that was in 2012, 2013. So what it will be now is, is anyone's guess. So it's all driven by, and when we talk about these quotas that are set, they're set by scientists, which is fantastic. We fully support science. But these scientists are being funded by the fishing industry or by governments. So they're, they're, they're biased in ways. It, you know, so that's where I would definitely say the sustainable uh, seafood is actually, it's a great idea if it's, achievable but at the moment there is no such thing as wild caught sustainable fish mr so do you want to respond well i think that's contradictory because you know you're saying that um, artisanal fishing is is uh, kosher so, i mean it kind of contradicts what is um, the statement that there is no sustainable fishing so at one point there is and also i mean the there is a logical fallacy in saying that by proving that certain elements of unsustainable fish, fishing um, does take place. Therefore, all fishing is so. I don't think that's the case. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one very good example. In New Zealand, we have a um, endemic species of abalone called power. So this is found nowhere else in the, in the world. Um, you'll, you often see it. It's, it's distinctive because it's, it's very black. The, the, the flesh is almost jack black. And there is a question on this. Um, and the uh, rules that apply, one must um, harvest these, these abalone by hand. So what that means is not only do you need divers um, to collect them from the, the ocean, and they must, they're not able to, they're not allowed uh, to use any um, underwater breathing apparatus. So it's by free diving only. And, and I, I think, you know, that's very close to what um, Gary is saying, that it's, uh, you know, artisanal fishing is, is um, the, the, um, the only way, well, not the only way, but um, and it, in his eyes, an improved way of, of fishing. And this is very, as, as, as close as you can get to it. Uh, Benjamin, so um, you're from... You're f you're from New Zealand, I believe, which is uh, probably why, how come you didn't know so much about it. But, um, but, uh, but how are we doing in mm. Hong Kong? I mean, um, uh, trawling was banned mm. in Hong Kong waters, uh, has been banned since yeah. 2012. Um, how do you see the situation here in terms of uh, sustainable fishing? Very, very, very grim, which is why we did uh, establish the Sustainable Seafood Coalition. 
And um, the other thing that's quite worrying is the, the lack of understanding um, of the public of the issue. So part of our challenge is getting people to understand that this really is a problem. And you know, to, to that extent, um, it, it's, it's great that Seaspiracy has, has um, hit the headlines. And at least people are aware of the issue. But at the same time, we also want to um, tell them about what steps can be taken um, to, to counter that problem. Okay, um, um, Gary Stokes, you mentioned there was an observer on board one of those New Zealand vessels. From who or what was the status of that person? You said because they were ignoring the uh, illegal catching. What was going on there? Well, a lot of the observers on these commercial fishing vessels are... Um, I'm, it's probably the most dangerous job in the world on a lot of the cases. Uh, so many observers don't come back to land. They just disappear uh, if they're very good at their job. Um, but other ones are easily bribed or actually just, uh, you know, convinced not to report or turn a blind eye. Um, and that, that is one of the, the biggest issues we face. Um, I was involved in a case in the uh, Philippines with a, a lovely lady when the Philippines were given the yellow card by Europe to sort it out its illegal fishing. Um, and that was even mentioned in the movie, the Gurley, who... You know, when the boats were coming in, she was observing everything, recording everything down, and the fishing industry didn't like that, and she got shot in front of her two kids. Um, you know, it's, it's a ruthless industry. But just to go back onto where you were just saying with Hong Kong, um, the trawling ban has been amazing. Um, you know, the seas are now starting to flourish. We're getting larger and larger fish. The artisanal fishermen that used to catch these small fish that were dry up and grind up or use for fish meal are now actually catching fish they can eat. And that's all fantastic. But what we are seeing, you know, I go out on the water with my boat and I do illegal fishing patrols. And when we talk about illegal fishing or IEU fishing, everybody thinks it's overseas. We actually have IEU fishing right here in Hong Kong. And because of COVID, I haven't been able to travel much around the region. So I've been tackling that with the Marine Police. We are getting vessels from the mainland coming in and setting gill nets. Uh, and snake nets, but we're also getting a lot of trawler activity along, the, especially the south of Lantau, southwest Lantau, and these are Hong Kong registered boats, and they're actually fishing illegally in Hong Kong waters. So we do need to step up on the enforcement, which is normally the the weakest link of the sustainability uh, myth. Uh, but on the whole, um, illegal fishing is still going on, um, and it's something we need to tackle. But isn't that right? Yeah, enforcement is, is the answer, uh, not to uh, give throw up our hands and say there's no such thing as sustainable uh, fishing or no possibility of sustainable fishing. Uh, it just has to be uh, better managed, better observers, give, I mean, uh, just run better and enforce better. The rules uh, stick to the rules more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to, it's a, a simplified version, but uh, sustainable fishing is basically three elements. There's the first, which is using fishing gear that is, uh, you know, minimal bycatch, not damaging to the environment. And a lot of the fishing fleets around the world are getting that one, that, that box ticked. Um, the second one is non-biased quotas set by scientists. Um, that one is a bit sketchy at the moment. The third one is enforcement, and the enforcement is seriously lacking in most of the world oceans, which is why we say 
there isn't any sustainable fishing at the moment on the high seas because there is no enforcement. The, the navies of the world that should be doing the enforcing don't. Um, and it's left to groups like when I used to be with Sea Shepherd. The Sea Shepherd had 12 vessels that were out patrolling the ocean and working with local governments in, say, West Africa or in Timor, where I went, um, and actually taking their enforcement on board, and we go out and find them, and then we board them, and they they uh, bring them to justice. You mentioned bycatch and changing the equipment, because the, the program also highlights the problem of uh, ghost nets and plastic pollution uh, from, from nets uh, around the world. So is that something that's also kind of being addressed if they change the equipment? Uh, changing the equipment, definitely. But, the, the, I mean, it's, I, I was out last Saturday with a group, and we, we hauled up about two, two tons of uh, a band of fishing gear that we pulled out of the waters of South Lantau. Um, it just baffles me that fishermen who, res, you know, they rely on this resource of fish, and yet they throw their abandoned nets overboard. Um, sometimes they're lost, you know, lost, lost nets maybe happen, but the, the magnitude that we're pulling out, they're all bundled together. These are nets that have purposely been dumped overboard. They're just too lazy. They don't want to take them back and, and actually process them through the correct channels. They just dump them overboard, and it's uh, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and that, that, that baffles me, because these nets continue to kill, uh, and they'll be taking away that very resource that they rely on. So ghost nets is a major issue. Um, one of the quotes was 48% of all marine debris found in the Pacific garbage patch was uh, fishing gear. But that was in the Pacific garbage patch. Around the world, it's, it constitutes about 20 about 20 to 25%, depending on the region. Mm. All right, well, we're going we're to break now for the news at uh, 9 o'clock. We'll continue uh, after that. Uh, also, perhaps we can talk a little bit about uh, fish farming and the prospects for that uh, in Hong Kong and uh, around the world. Uh, in fact, uh, join in by uh, emailing back, chat at rthk.hk, or call us on 233-88266. We're also going to be talking later and hearing about uh, the issue of pa uh, pets and the pandemic, uh, quarantine and transportation. Uh, the weather, many cloudy, sunny intervals during the day, temperatures up to 28 degrees, 24 degrees now, humidity is Welcome back. This is Bank Chat on a Thursday morning with Jim Gould and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking uh, about uh, fish and uh, the issue of uh, overfishing. Well, later we're going to be talking about pets and the pandemic uh, with the vet, uh, uh, quarantine arrangements uh, for your animals and also uh, moving overseas, uh, the possibilities and how COVID is affecting uh, that. If you've got any questions or comments, uh, please call us on 233-88266 or email backchat at rthk.hk uh, or go to our Facebook page. That's Bank Chat on RTHK Radio 3 and put your questions and uh, comments there. Uh, we're talking this morning to Gary Stokes, co-founder and director of all operations at Oceans Asia, formerly Asia director for the Sea Shepherd Global, and Benjamin So, Mr. So, founder of a seafood import firm, 178 Degrees Company, and founding member of uh, Hong Kong Seafood Sustainable Coalition. Once again, our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Uh, Quick email from uh, Matthew, uh, continuing uh, earlier uh, discussion. Uh, Matthew says, sorry, Hugh, I know it's difficult. I do respect you and what you've done with the programme in the past, but we have to be 
honest with ourselves and each other. The conflict of interest argument to explain why no one from RTHK joined yesterday's programme is nonsense. It's the equivalent of a company facing issues with shareholders then holding a forum to discuss these issues where no one for the company turns up. These kinds of justifications may provide some temporary relief and comfort to make it possible to continue doing a very difficult task one day at a time, but as the custodian of this programme on behalf of the Hong Kong people, it's important you keep a clear perspective on what's happening and being done to the programme and to RTHK. From the outside looking in, it is a very rapid unique Ification. So these, uh, so those involved with the program need to step back and be careful. The same thing doesn't happen to them in the way it slowly happened with the police and other government officials and supporters. As principle gave way to self-preservation and interest. Today, the hot topic we're discussing is fishing. Last Friday, in the middle of the controversy about the government unilaterally putting in place new laws allowing them to arbitrarily bar Hong Kong people leaving and returning to their home, the lead topic was Cathay Pacific. Either neither of these are the real current affairs. Uh, in Hong Kong. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for your uh, care and uh, concern. We do a variety of topics, of course. We did talk about the uh, those uh, legal issues uh, at a different time, and uh, we have talked about Cathay Pacific, we've talked a lot about COVID, we've talked about political developments, and today we're talking about uh, a, a current issue, uh, and that's the question of uh, overfishing, which I know is on uh, quite a few people's minds. And a couple of more emails uh, on today's main topic. Uh, June writes, uh, Dear Backchat, the Financial Times, which is a reputable media, just published an article about switching one's diet from beef to tofu, which could help tackle climate change. The article provides solid data and analysis on greenhouse emissions for every 100 grams of protein to each category of food and protein requirement for men and women. Frankly, so much has been published on or in the mainstream uh, news about this for many years now, nothing is new. The comments about that article, however, are sarcastic and juvenile. People are selfish and don't want to give up things they enjoy. It reminds me of the pandemic we are now in because some people from the outset refuse to wear a mask, stay home just because they are selfish and now look at where we are a year after, still in the midst of it and trying to tackle the variants. We are far from winning this just because we have a vaccine. There are strong parallels there. Even if people can drop their meat consumption slightly, that would help the planet. So why not try? And um, one other uh, from uh, S. just uh, from 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 S. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, um, S. Oh yeah, here it. So S. S. Writes. Um, Mahatma Gandhi said, "The world has enough for man's need, but not." for man's greed. That from S. Thanks very much indeed. Our email address once again, backchat at rthk.hk. Benjamin So, um, uh, you know, what about fish farming? Is that the solution? If there are these fundamental ongoing uh, problems, maybe it's not impossible to fish sustainably, but, you know, it's it's tricky. Uh, Isn't the answer to just grow the fish uh, ourselves? I think the answer is similar because... um it does exist, uh, there do exist good um, aquaculture solutions, and again, it's, it's how it's done. And um, just to, um, first of all, I'd like to um, uh, just refer to a comment pre- previous to the break where um, we talked about enforcement being the problem. I think it's the implementation that we're talking about um, that's, that's really the crux, and it's the same with, with aquaculture. So, yes, there are. Um, bad fish farms around the world that use a lot of um, fish to feed the fish. And so you're not really solving the problem that way. 
Um, so uh, perhaps if I could also, again, cite a, a New Zealand example, um, full disclosure here, we actually work with this particular supplier. Um, it's, it's Mount Cook Alpine Salmon. And if you have a look at um, their location, it's actually up in the, um, the Southern Alps, about three, uh, two to 3,000 meters in the mountains. So it literally is in, in um, alpine condition. Uh, because of that, they have um, an absolutely um, pure water source. It's basically melt water from, from the peaks and just goes straight through um, these uh, uh, waterways. Um, which were initially meant for hydroelectric power generation. So what that means is you've got a, um, a, a sealed uh, location where it's, it's almost impossible for fish to escape out of or into. So you know, this is a um, pretty unusual situation. So granted, it's not applicable everywhere. But again, I think it's a, a good... Um, illustration of, of what um, sort of creative solutions exist out there. And um, if you look at the different metrics for um, measuring the sustainability of fish farms, one key one is what they call um, fish in, fish out. So it's how much fish do you put in as opposed to what is harvested. And so in this case, it's... Um, I believe, I don't have the exact number, but I believe it's below one. So you're actually getting more fish as a result than you're putting in. And it sounds like magic, but what, what actually is happening is they're getting proteins from non-marine sources. So there are, there are other proteins that are added to the fish feed um, to produce the Okay, uh, well, that, that's one, that's one example. That, uh, um, Gary Stokes, uh, fish farming got a pretty bad rap in the documentary uh, Sea Spiracy. Uh, uh, was it fair? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems is, uh, you know, the people that are now becoming aware of what's going on on the, on the oceans um, are then also, you know, sort of redirected and the solution they're given is, is agriculture or fish farms. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is actually in the wording as well. I mean, like for example, when I mentioned bluefin tuna earlier, they're ranched, which sounds great, um, but they're actually all wild caught uh, and then fed wild caught fish. So you know you've got to go careful with the generic terms as well that are being used. So anything that says ranched is actually wild caught. The aquaculture industry, um, as as been also pointed out. The quantity of fish being used, wild-caught fish, these are bait fish. A lot of these are being caught from uh, poor nations. They're actually sort of taking them from a poor nation to fatten up salmon, tuna, things like that, for the Western sort of markets. Um, the antibiotics and everything they're putting in, this is all real. You can you know, find out with any of the, the agricultural companies. A lot of them are actually very transparent about it, um, you know, these pens actually get moved every, you know, six months in a lot of places because they create these toxic dead zones directly below the nets where the fish feed that isn't eaten falls through and starts rotting underneath. Also, the poop from the fish goes down. So, you know, the actual environmental footprint is actually no better or no worse. What about in, in Hong Kong? There's sort of an ongoing controversy, I think, about, about aquaculture 
uh, here and kind of hits and misses. What's the state of play at the moment, Mr. Stokes? Well, um, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the uh, aqua, aquacultural um, places out near Lantau or in Chimawan, a lot of those fish are actually not raised there. They're, they're they're caught wild caught. They're imported in. We have these fish carriers that are coming in. Uh, they'll take those and actually put them into these pens and sort of flatten them up and also keep them there ready for market. So, you know, it's, it's a very complex issue um, as in terms of when you say farms. Um, you know, are they grown as hatchlings and, and, and grown up or are they actually just imported from somewhere else? Okay. Do, do you have any idea of the numbers? I mean, I, I know the government has in the past, you know, put money into aquaculture and uh, boosted, tried to boost uh, the industry uh, to some extent, I think, as a replacement for, for, uh, for fishing, for, for, for sea fishing. I mean, is it, is it doing well? Is it doing badly? How would you rate that? terms of numbers I, I don't know i would have to check and i wouldn't want to speculate or, or or misquote anything um but yeah i mean in a way they're they're being sold the same sort of myth that that is the solution to counter uh, uh pressure that we're putting on the the wild seas is the the solution is to go to aquaculture and that's what the public's being told that's what the government is being told but is it actually the reality yeah but but again as mr so was saying you could do it well or you could do it badly isn't the answer to Ab do it to do it do it well do it properly absolutely i mean there are there are you know like the example um, mr so just gave about being right up in the hills yes there are these little niche sort of ideas and that you know that's up on a hilltop um where does all the waste go how is the waste handled uh, where is the feed coming from so there are some examples which are innovative and possibly a solution down the road. At the moment, the scalability isn't there. Um, and if it was on a massive scale, then great. If it works, great. We fully support that. But at the moment, we're not, which is why we're saying there is no such thing as sustainable seafood. Are you basically saying we should stop eating fish? I mean, that was more or less the message from Seaspiracy, wasn't it? We should move to a, to a plant-based diet. Is that the essence of what you're saying, Gary Stokes? I won't ask Benjamin so, obviously, because uh, you sell fish for a living, but <laughs> Gary yeah, Stokes? Well, well, I mean, um, <laughs> this is one of the things where, you know, we were, you know, the movie was sort of hit with, oh, you know, it's impossible. The whole world can't stop fishing, can't stop consuming fish. It's not. The movie was made on Netflix for Netflix subscribers. Those people are affluent people who live in uh, societies where we actually have a choice. We can go to the supermarket and we make a decision of what we want. The artisanal people and the coastal communities and the poor substance fishermen, they don't have a choice. And, and we're never saying they need to be stopping. It's the people that have the choice. These are the people, all of the stuff in the supermarket that we get is coming from these large industrial commercial fishing vessels which are strip mining in the ocean. Those are the ones we need to put out of business. Those are the ones that need to be shut down or controlled by uh, governments and things. That is the issue here, not, as I've said before, the artisanal coastal fishermen, sustenance fishermen. So, yes, I believe we do need to, to put a pause. The oceans will replenish and bounce back 
if we give them a break. And at the moment, we really need to give them a break. OK, well, uh, one thing I'd like to ask uh, Benjamin so uh, quickly. Um, so if we are to have uh, internationally sustainable fishing, I mean, presumably we need proper international agreements, whereas uh, it seems that uh, fishing is in fact the source of a number of disputes. I mean, we've got this uh, ongoing argument between between China and the Philippines at the moment. Uh, France has threatened UK to cut off the water to Jersey yeah. over, over uh, fishing licences. Uh, some of us remember the Cod War in the 1970s between Britain and Iceland. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I, I agree, actually. That, um, um, going back to um, what Gary was saying earlier, I think he um, mentioned that there is no such thing as sustainable fishing in, in the high seas, in international waters. And I, I think um, that is more um, a realistic uh, uh, characterization. It's, it's a bit of a blanket statement to say that there is no such thing at all. In the high seas, it's different because it um, doesn't really belong to anyone. And it's another case of the, the tragedy of the commons. Um, so, you know, when you talk about international markets, that is going to be in, in a very difficult um, pile. But at the same time, there is um, a lot of fish caught in each country's exclusive economic zone, the EEZ. And there, the, you know, sovereign states do have a lot of influence over how fish is regulated. And again, to take the, um, the New Zealand example, that model it can um, be applied to, to other um, fishing zones around the world. And of course, you know, there needs to be political will and there, are, there is uh, a definite um, lobbying interest involved. Anytime you make any changes, there are vested interests that um, you're going to um, disturb. So I'm not saying it's easy, but um, it definitely is possible. And, and uh, you know, Lydian has, has demonstrated that fact. Okay, just a couple of uh, emails to uh, finish off. Uh, or, uh, comments on Facebook. Tim says it's good listening to Gary Stokes, but I think he said the same thing on Phil Whelan's Morning Brew a few days ago. It was good to hear from from uh, Gary and you, Tim, as well. Uh, of course, he does also appear in the Seaspiracy, uh, the actual uh, documentary. And uh, Chris Hanselman uh, says, I have my own company in Hong Kong selling only responsibly accredited seafood. This is a more appropriate term than sustainable. I'm also a member of HKSSC with Benjamin. I have been pushing this for the last 20 years. It has been hard, but we are gaining traction. We are creating awareness and must continue. MSC, that's one of the people who were sort of doing the uh, sustainable fishing or, or recommended fish, fish uh, uh, branding. MSC are not perfect, but they are trying. This is a no brand in Hong Kong now, uh, a known brand in Hong Kong now, and people do seek it out. We have to continue on this path, and eventually we will win. I say eventually. Every stakeholder in the supply chain needs to take ownership. Ultimately, positive change can only be driven by the buyer. This does not mean stop eating fish. It does mean making responsible purchasing decisions. That's from uh, Chris Hanselman. As I say, many thanks to our guest this morning, to Benjamin So, uh, who's the founding member of the Hong Kong Seafood Sustainable Coalition, and to Gary Stokes, co-founder and director of operations at uh, Oceans Asia, formerly of uh, Sea Shepherd Global as well. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much indeed for uh, all the comments uh, from uh, listeners. Uh, uh, just a few more to uh, finish off. Um, 
This is from uh, Amanda Whitford, uh, who's a, a professor of law at uh, in um, the University of Hong Kong. Um, uh, Professor Whitford says, a study published in 2017 estimates that Hong Kong is taking 50% of the legal and illegal global trade in shark fins, with up to 30% sourced from threatened species. The percentage of the live reef fish trade is even higher, with a report published in 2015 finding Hong Kong takes 70 to 80% of the regional live reef food fish trade. While much of the live reef fish entering Hong Kong arrives by air, a significant portion is landed by fishing vehicles. Loopholes in, re- in reporting requirements for locally registered fishing vehicles allow them to land fish without customs inspection. The Marine Fish Marketing Ordinance, CAP 291, which requires all fresh marine fish to be landed and sold at the wholesale fish markets operated by the Fish Marketing Organisation, excludes live marine fish and and transshipped fish. That's from uh, Professor Woodford. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, observation. Um, finally, today we wanted to uh, talk a little bit about um, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, pets and uh, the uh, pandemic. We're joined now by Dr. Jerry Paul. Is it? Oh. Pal, I beg your pardon, who's uh, a uh, veterinarian from uh, Pet Export Vet, uh, also the executive board of the International Pet and Animal Transportation uh, Association. Once again, our email address is backchat.rthk.hk if you've got a question or comment. Um, Dr. Pal, I've got to say, um, last year um, there was a lot of concern about... Um, do you want to move a little bit closer to the microphone and we can hear you? Well, um, uh, there was a lot of concern about uh, people get, about pets getting COVID or spreading COVID. Um, what's the situation now? Because that's kind of fallen from the headlines. Do we know any more about that that risk? Well, there has been uh, some reported cases uh, in dogs and cats, but they're not certainly a species that is highly um, prevalent with actually um, uh, incubating and transmitting the virus. Certainly has been some high-profile cases, for example, in mink farms in Europe. uh, Certain species, with COVID in particular, uh, can uh, are more susceptible to it, and the, the mink farms were an issue. Also, apparently, some big cats in USA as well. However, not so much with dogs and cats. We have to remember that coronaviruses, though, are quite ubiquitous amounts all species, to be honest. And there are species-specific coronaviruses that do affect cats and do affect dogs, but they've got different symptoms altogether to the COVID uh, disease. Uh, so you know, coronavirus in general is a is a is a is a common disease of of dogs and cats. But you've got to understand that COVID specifically um, is is uh, is more of a human disease as we see it. And uh, so that's the current status. Okay. It's certainly not highly. And, and how does the uh, legislation and arrangements, how are they standing at the moment? First of all, about, about transport. Uh, I, I know this is part of uh, your business uh, involved in, in animal transport. If you want to go overseas, can you take animals? What's the situation now at the moment about that? Nothing, is it, is it nothing, just like it was? Or? Nothing much has changed. I guess the big difficulty right now is that the, for international pet travel is that there's not many airlines flying. So for professional pet shippers such as myself, it's uh, our hardest uh, task at the moment is trying to get pets onto aircraft. As far as government policy is concerned internationally, there's not really ch- much changed regarding COVID. Malaysia, for example, is I think the only country that I'm aware of that requires a COVID test for pets before arriving into that country. Uh, United Arab Emirates and Dubai and those states do require a two-week quarantine period in a veterinary facility for pets entering the country prior to export. 
Um, they're, they're the only uh, cases I'm aware of where actually there's been government policy uh, in response to the COVID crisis. What about if you live in a tower block and uh, you know, it's suddenly subject to what they call a, an ambush lockdown and you've got a dog or a cat at home, um, what are you going to do about your pets in those circumstances? Uh, well, I actually don't know the details. That I say my expertise in international pet relocation and I, I'm really not totally aware of what the current situation is, especially with the, the recent cases. I think you'd need to ask the AFCD that question. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, so you say that there's, there's not a lot of travel, obviously, at the moment uh, for, for, for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, I mean, certain people may be relocating, or, or um, so. So, so okay. So, say you're leaving Hong Kong, you're going to Australia, you're going to Europe, or something like that. Um, so, what, what's the procedure for taking your pets with you? There is actually a lot of people getting out of Hong Kong, um, and uh, we've got uh, our demand for inquiries uh, for pet travel has probably increased three hundred percent in the past twelve months, wow. and. Uh, we're having particular problems with the UK and Australia at the moment because there's very limited flights. We've actually got a lot of clients who have actually got pets. They've had to leave. They've, they've left Hong Kong and their pets. They've had to make uh, contingency plans for their pets and we're trying to get those pets out. So it is quite a difficult situation at the moment. You know, as things improve, like things are improving in the UK, so we hope there'll be more flights starting to come and we'll be able to get more animals out. But it is actually a bit of a bottleneck at the moment and, and quite difficult. And so, 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 so have they had to leave the pets behind and go, and go first themselves, leave the pets behind uh, with a view to bringing them along later? Or Yes, okay, yeah. yeah. Well, 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 obviously people who inquire to us uh, obviously planning to take their pet get their pets there mm -hmm. so that's the sort of cohort of clients of people that we're seeing and 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 speaking with and uh, they're trying to uh, either uh, have friends or family look after them or boarding facilities but i mean we uh you know whatever whatever way they can do it but uh, obviously uh, this is not a logistics of uh, packages this is uh, you know, these are uh, family members and, and much loved. And so there's a lot of emotional um, in, in involved with this as well. So it's uh, quite stressful for pet owners who want their animals to go with them and keep their family together. Uh, if you uh, what if, if your pet is uh, not a cat or a dog uh, and you're put in a quarantine, what are the rules there and what are the arrangements? I'm sorry, I have no idea. Oh, okay. No, I don't know. Yeah. Yes. A python. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not sure what the what the situation is. You know, the government would have to be uh, consulted on that. Mm. Are you Are you concerned at all about this? I mean, uh, that uh, pets are suffering in in COVID in, in Hong Kong. That they are missing out. I I don't think so. I mean, I think life for pets in COVID during this COVID times hasn't changed a lot. I mean, I, I, I think that... Um, Do you know if more are being uh, abandoned, if there's an increase in that? Well, uh, again, I mean, I heard in the early stages of the COVID crisis that actually mm. there was a, a, a lot of pets actually being taken into families because a lot more people were spending the time at home and uh, they were actually making the decision to, to do that, which I think is great. Um, However, now at the at this point, I'm not quite sure what the current status is. I, I think there's still some uh, stress uh, with the welfare agencies. Mm -hmm.
Okay, well, many thanks for uh, joining us uh, there. That's uh, Dr. Jerry Falk, who's a veterinarian from Pet Export Vet, or also um, the executive board of the International Pet and Animal Transportation Association. Thank you very much, Steve, for, for uh, joining us. Uh, a couple more uh, emails to uh, share before we wrap up the program uh, today. Uh, Magna says, Hi, just an update on Singapore's uh, uh, out of control, in inverted commas, exponentially growing COVID crisis that we were told on Monday has, quote, ominous implications for us here in Hong Kong. Daily new community, i.e. local cases in Singapore, uh, April the 29th, 16, April the 30th, I'll, I'll just say day by day, all right, so the 16, then 9, then 7, then 14, then 10, and on May the 4th, 5. Please ask expert commentator Dr. Alvin Chan what that time series looks like and what that implies. Please really do challenge these inaccurate and misleading statements that are made on the show and then rolled into RTHK news reports as facts. And please call them out as having been inaccurate when they are shown to be so. The media's parroting of this very easily debunkable fear-mongering gives it false validity and serves to keep us in this perpetual non-emergency state of emergency. Emergency. That uh, is the view from uh, Magnus. Thank you very much indeed for uh, that. And uh, one more comment. This is from Bowen on the issue of Hugh and Matthew, who says, uh, Dear Backchat, with regard to the exchange of views between Hugh and Matthew at the beginning of the first and second segments of the show, my take is that RTHK's refusal or reluctance to send any representatives to discuss yesterday's topic is more a result of the direction that the government is headed towards rather than because of any inherent conflict of interest that cannot be overcome. Needless to say the authorities here seem determined to go further along a much more authoritarian route generally such as that adopted in singapore and hugh's efforts to nip the argument in the bud is evidence of that one major difference between singapore and hong kong's situation is that the vast majority of senior singaporean officials have had tremendous exposure to western education and values and so they know how to keep appearances relatively viable examples are that they just demand the right to give replies to criticisms of their government in foreign newspapers distributed in Singapore, which looked civil, and of course Lee Kuan Yew himself knew the Commodore system too well to have been capable of damaging it while using legal processes to go after his political rivals. But the Chinese authorities do not have that background and exposure, so any comparison with Singapore in the legal or the press freedom field is liable to be unsafe and misleading. That is from Bowen. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jim, thank you very much indeed. Uh, here's the weather just before we go. It's going to be mainly cloudy today. Sunny intervals forecast during the day with temperatures up to about 28 degrees and the outlook mainly fine and hot uh, apart from some isolated showers in the next couple of days. The latest reading is 24 Celsius and the relative humidity is now at 80%. No matter how fit we are, it is important to get vaccinated to prevent COVID-19. All along, we have received different vaccines to prevent infections. Vaccines will help create antibodies and memory in our immune system. When we come into contact with viruses in future, our immune system will quickly resist them. It is the simplest and most effective method to protect ourselves and others. Let's get vaccinated. 931, the news now with Samantha Butler. The president of the Public Doctors Association, Arasina Ma, says the government needs to prepare more quarantine places as it tries to stop the spread of more infectious COVID variants in the community. Over the past week, hundreds of households in four residential blocks have been quarantined for 21 days after confirmed cases were found in the buildings. In the latest action, health authorities say no new infections were found after testing some 460 residents of Orway Gardens in Chun Wan.
The G7 has criticised China and Russia for failing to meet international standards. In a lengthy communique, Beijing was criticised for its treatment of minorities, particularly the Uyghur, its conduct in the South China Sea and its coercive economic policies. And the United States has thrown its support behind an initiative at the World Trade Organization to waive intellectual property protections for coronavirus vaccines. India and South Africa proposed the move, which they said would increase vaccine production around the world. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. And where oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for advances and not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Decide of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. Welcome to Thursday. It's The Morning Brew and today we're due for our veterinary, veterinary house call at 11.10. Dr. David Gething will be with us to talk about the rarest dog diseases and their appearance in Hong Kong. Hopefully there aren't any, but we'll have a chat. Also, we've had a couple of emails, one interesting one about tongues. So we're going to bounce off your emails as well this morning. It's morningbrew at rthk.hk. If you want to get in touch, do send us any pet questions after 12. Yeah, it's the first Thursday of the month. That means the Wizard of Wine returns. JC Viennes is going to be up bright and early to join us from the Venice Lagoon in Italy. Join him on Facebook Live for some top advice and, of course, a stunning view. 